how do you combat the doubt? You combat the doubt by looking at what are the actual results. And if you're trying to measure yourself from today to yesterday, of course, the picture is not going to be that pretty. But if you measure yourself from when you began to where you are now, which could be weeks or months, then you get a better picture of how far you have come. What's going on, everyone? Emily Abadi here. You are listening to season 15, the premiere of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential and, of course, have some fun along the way. Wow. 678 episodes in the catalog. Hurdle is now listened to in over 215 countries and we are back for season 15. Wow. It's just, uh, yeah, it's crazy. A little bit of backstory here for those of you that may be newer to the feed. Hurdle started at the very top of 2018. I was going through some turbulent moments in my personal and professional life. Recently let go from Condé Nast after Self Magazine folded where I was the fitness editor there. I was freelance writing and asking myself, what is it that I want to do with my voice? What is it that I want to put into the world? And sitting on a couch with a good friend, I said this statement. I said, I just want to get over this hurdle. And it was in that moment that it all started to spiral. It all started to concept. I wanted to combine my years of editorial experience over a decade working in the health and wellness space with my passion and pursuit for the area of wellness, having my own personal story of transformation that really taught me that the best thing that you can invest in is yourself. For more on my story, you can check out episode one of the show. I'm going to link that in the show notes. And now today, I could not be more elated to bring you episode 269 of Hurdle with the one, the only Diego Perez, better known to many of you as Young Pueblo. You're likely familiar with his writing. It's all over social media. He has a new book out right now. I'll link that in the show notes as well. It's called The Way Forward. His writing has been Gosh, so influential for me over the years. And I was elated. That is the biggest understatement to have the opportunity to sit down with him for a really special conversation. We talk about his beginnings. He talks to me about the rock bottom hurdle moment he experienced in college that inspired him to walk away from drugs for good and examine the anxieties and fears that he had been running away from for so long. Diego also opens up about how he got into meditation through doing this self-work and how he integrates it into his everyday, currently meditating every single day for two hours. He gives us the tips and tricks on how he never skips that practice and why he never will. 
If you're a fan of Diego's writing, then you know that he often touches on topics like boundaries and self-worth and relationships. And we have a lot of great dialogue on so many of those themes in today's episode. Make sure you're following along with Hurdle over on social. It's at Hurdle Podcast. I myself am over at Emily Abadi. And we've got a weekly newsletter. It's called The Weekly Hurdle. It comes out every Friday. The link to subscribe to that, it's absolutely free, is also in the show notes. Let's do this. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Diego Perez. He is a best-selling author known to many as Young Pueblo. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me, Emily. I'm excited to, to talk. I know. The fact that I was able to not only secure you for the show, but secure you for the show during such a hectic time for you. How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling pretty good. I just finished a week in Los Angeles doing a bunch of interviews there. So I'm just like happy to be home this week and kind of focusing on, you know, doing what needs to get done, but also preparing myself energetically to go back out on the road. I know in the intro, of course, I will have mentioned The Way Forward. That's what we're talking about right now. You have a new book coming out. Does having a new book come out feel like maybe having a child? Yeah. And you know, what's funny is that um, in the sense that this book, I feel like it just puts together and makes sense all the other books, you know, it, it is sort of like weaves this larger picture, because I, I wrote this one book called Lighter um, last year, and it was a nonfiction book, which was really different from the poetry and prose books that I usually usually release. But the way forward kind of just brings together inward and clarity and connection and to me, those first two poetry and prose books, like they were incomplete without the way forward. So it almost feels like a sigh of relief, like, okay, they're all out there. It's a complete set. And now people will hopefully, you know, really understand what I'm talking about. Really understand what you're talking about. And a lot of people keep up with what you're talking about. Something like over 2.7 million followers on Instagram, many of them regularly sharing your stuff. Before we get into a little bit of your backstory and how you got to be in this place that you are now, I do want to talk about the meaning behind the pseudonym Young Pueblo. So why don't you give us the lowdown? Sure. So Young Pueblo, it was a name that kind of just popped up, like popped into my mind when I first got onto Instagram back in like 2012. And back then it was just a private account. But when I started meditating, I started realizing that I'm really immature. Like I have a lot of growing up to do. And I've been studying history my whole life. Like I've always been really like just enjoyed learning about the rise and fall of empires. Like how systems develop over time. And I started realizing that humanity as a whole is very immature. Like when we're trying to think about what actually is maturity, I always like to think back to what were we first learning when we were kids. And when you send a kid to kindergarten, the first things your teachers are trying to teach you is like how to clean up after yourself, how to share, how to be kind to one another, how to tell the truth, you know, and just generally, um, you know, to not hit each other, these like fundamental basics. And we may be good at these things as individuals, but as a human collective, we haven't mastered these basic things at all. And to me, young Pueblo, um, it just means young people. And it means like, you know, we're still on the rise, we're still maturing, we're still growing. And that's why I like to focus all of my writing around 
personal transformation and relationships because I feel like in a big way, these things are the building blocks of society. And to me, my writing feels like one of the sort of very small things that, you know, because so many different people are trying to improve humanity as a whole um, through their own way. And, you know, I'm just trying to add to that current of the many millions that are trying to push us in a better direction. Yeah, yeah, that's really special. And, you know, it's so interesting because you talk about this concept that humanity is potentially entering an era of remarkable growth and healing, but there is just so much happening in the world. In this work that you do, do you go through periods of feeling maybe frustrated or just at a loss for what is going on in our world in terms of society and so many other facets? Yeah, like every other week. <laughs> yeah, you just watch, you watch, you keep watching the news and like the news, um, you know, it'll bring focus to like obviously things that are important and, but you keep sort of developing this sort of more to more microscopic attention when you're looking at different, like, oh, this issue that's going on here, or this issue that's going on there. But what I try to do is intentionally take a big step back. If I'm going to try to really get a sense of, you know, how we're moving as humanity, I have to remind myself that like we live in a special time. Like we live in a time where there are millions and millions of people who are meditating these days, millions and millions of people who are seeking different forms of therapy, people who are, you know, using psychiatry or using, you know, there's so many different healing modalities that are available to people now than ever before. And to me, this is like historically unprecedented, right? Like these um, modalities that come from the Eastern world, that come from indigenous modalities, that come from the Western world, like they're more widely accessible than they ever been. Like we can always go further in terms of accessibility, but it's undeniable that these modalities that can help transform your mind are way more accessible. So to me, that gives me a lot of hope because there are always people that are trying to change the world for the better, but this is one of the first times where we can change ourselves individually, internally, as we're trying to change the world. And to me, that's that's the missing piece. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the word accessibility because, as you pointed out, there still is work that can be done on that front. And okay. I would almost argue that some people who struggle with accessibility turn to content like yours to help them get through their difficult moments. How does that statement make you feel? When did you come to a place where you realize that as an individual, you, Diego, have that opportunity to help others? I think, I mean, one, I feel really grateful that that's even the way things have turned out. I, I feel it's interesting because a lot of times, like, you know, I, I as an individual, like I can't define things. I can only give my perspective on things and I can only reflect openly because that's what I really feel like I'm doing. I'm just openly reflecting and sharing things that would be happening in my own mind, you know, if it was just me and myself. But the way that things have worked out, you know, putting things out there on the internet and how big they've gotten. Um, I feel like a mixture of a sense of responsibility and also reminding myself, like, at the end of the day, you know, I can't control the way people perceive different things that I write. And ultimately, like, all I can really share are my perspectives. And to me, I feel like the number one most important thing is that I just keep meditating. Like, that's, that's the number one thing is like, if I keep, you know, uh, meditating in this Vipassana practice that has given me so much. Like I've been in the Goenka tradition for 11 years now, and the results have been like completely life-changing. And I've seen the way that it has improved my relationship with my wife, 
you know, with my parents, with my brother and sister, and just with, you know, with everything that comes together with work. So to me, it's like, if I want to put forward the best version of myself, I just need to double down on meditating because I know that's what works for me. Yeah. It's that whole put your oxygen mask on first so that you can then help others situation. And your meditation practice is quite extensive. You meditate for two hours a day. Yeah. And I've been doing that for like, I think it's a, a little more than eight years now. And I've been, you know, doing it daily and it's been, you know, it's a big time investment. Um, but I always think about the results that I get. That's what reminds me, like, you know, whenever I feel tired or I feel too lazy or, you know, want to watch too much Netflix, it's like, no, nah, you know, remember, like, this is actually improving every facet of your life. And even with, you know, meditating two hours a day and having all this work that I need to do it still feels like, you know, you can still find time to waste. So yeah, I mean, this is like the definition of if he wanted to, he would. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I do think that there is some context to provide in that it's not like one day you just said, you know what I'm going to start doing, I'm going to start meditating for two hours a day. And then that brought you all of these different results. And obviously, then in turn, this audience. So give us some context into where you were in your life when you first found meditation. Yeah, I'm glad you're pointing that out because it was all very slow and gradual. Um, So I was at the summer of 2011, I I sort of hit this breaking point in my life where I was trying to run away from my emotions as fast as possible in the easiest way possible. And the medium that I found was, you know, drugs and alcohol, just like trying to you know, whenever a tense emotion would arise, I would try my fastest to just like find some weed, roll a joint or drink alcohol or, or go to as many parties as possible. And that long pattern that was lasting for about five to six years, it resulted in me just like wrecking my body, right? Like my mind felt terrible, my body felt terrible. And there was one particular night where I pushed my body too far And I felt like I was dying. Like I felt like my heart was going to explode. And in that moment, I realized if I keep going like this, you know, I'm going to lose my life. Like my body literally can't take it anymore. And I started changing my habits, you know, quite slowly. The first thing I did was I just stopped all the things that could immediately endanger my life. So any hard drugs, I put them down and I started, um, you know, going for long walks, I started trying to tell myself the truth, I started practicing not running away from my emotions, even when it was difficult. And it felt like this sort of this year long period of self love where I was just, you know, and I'm talking like pre the self love era, like 20, that 2011, you know, 2011 to 2012, when people on Instagram weren't even talking about self love yet. And it felt like a really nourishing and empowering time, especially in regards to all those emotions that I was avoiding. Because to me, when they would come up, all that tension, it felt so daunting to even sit with it. But when I challenged myself to spend 5, 10, 15 minutes just you know, literally sitting on my bed, feeling those emotions, it was surprisingly not as overwhelming as I thought they were, it was going to be. So in that moment, I felt like a lot of my, you know, I got to reclaim a lot of my power. And Eventually, I did a silent 10-day meditation course. And when I did that course, it was super, super difficult. Um, And I, you know, basically, honestly, barely made it through. And but when I finished the course, 
I realized that my mind felt lighter and my mind felt better than before, almost like if it was, you know, 10 to 15% lighter than it used to be. And by lighter, I mean, like there was less anxiety, less stress, less tension, like less of that reactive quality. And I was really shocked by that. So over the next two year period between 2012 and 2014, I did a few more of those 10 day courses before I actually started meditating every day. Yeah. Yeah. A few things to double click on. First and foremost, you're doing all of this in your early 20s. You really made a myriad of choices all at the same time, all of which individually could have been difficult to execute. So for someone else who may recognize certain patterns or wants to make a profound change in their life, and they do recognize that there are several different things that they want to do, what do you say to them? Because I think that that in itself can be daunting, wanting to incorporate all of these different changes at the same time. Totally. And it sounds like a lot when I'm telling the story, you know, like the quick, like two, three minute version of the story, but it was like slow, you know, like it was, I'm talking slow. Like I remember the first two things between 2011 to 2012 were don't do any drugs that can take your life and move, move your body, like go for long walks, go to the gym, you know, drink more water, do things that would help my body. And that was like the primary objective for that first year. And when that felt sort of secure, when it felt like second nature, like it was like, okay, this isn't too difficult. I'm getting into the rhythm and habit of this. Then it was like, okay, what can I turn my attention next, you know, to next? And that's when I started focusing on meditating and going even deeper with facing my emotions. And, you know, that took like a, that took like a two and a half, almost three year period where it was like, okay, like I want to bring meditation into my daily life. And I kept building. So my advice to people is like, you don't want to change everything at once. You want to pick like one or two of the most important things and strengthen them, like put your determination to them, make them building blocks, like foundational aspects of your life. And then once they feel secure, then you put put the next brick in, right? And pick the next thing that you're going to work on. And like that, I think... Um, you know, that's really where I am now is like every two years, like even now, like I feel like right now this time, because meditation is so dialed in and like, I'm going to meditate every day, no matter what, right? Like, I'm, I know that I'm going to do it. And I know how, how good it is for me. And it's not a, a questionable thing. So now my attention is turning to more so fine tuning my health and trying to bring it to like a new level of health so that, you know, I can, you know, hope, hopefully be a dad someday and like take great care of my kids and like, you know, be, light and healthy and able to play with them as hard as I can. And um, so, but all these things like take time. So like the beginning was just like trying to save myself, like save my life. And now it's like, let's get stronger. Beautifully put. And I'm curious, are you habit stacking at all with the meditation? So is there anything else for you at this moment that you pair with that, that practice that's a non-negotiable? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, no, I mean, the meditation, I definitely keep it like separate to everything else. Like, I don't want to like, over like, it's already like, a it's its own big thing that's giving me so many things. So I always keep it kind of separate from everything else and try not to combine it with other things. But I think the, uh, the only other like super simple thing that I'm making sure to do is just to like drink a glass of water when I wake up. It's like, it's, it's so easy to just get dehydrated throughout the day. So I'm like, let me get a glass of water and 
then I'll sit down to meditate in the morning. But um, the other things are kind of like, um, and this is like the issue with a lot of people who like own their own businesses and are their, you know, they're, they're their own employer is like, every day can be so different, right? Like one day you'll wake up and it's the moment you wake up, you just have meeting after meeting after meeting or all these different things. So to me, like I meditate two hours a day, but um, it depends, you know, sometimes I'll wake up and meditate right away or other days I'll wake up and then meditate like sort of like three hours after I wake up because the first few hours are just things I have to do or I have to squeeze in my workout first. And, you know, so every day is pretty different. Every day is pretty different. Do you have those days where you realize that it's six o'clock and you haven't gotten the time to meditate yet? No, because I I make time. Like I'm just like if you know if it's uh, if it gets too late in the day, I'm like you know because the, the the value of sitting those two hours a day, and that's something that you know I learned from from my teacher Sen Goenka is like you want to meditate at some point in the morning because that whole time at night when you were sleeping, you were reacting to your sensations, right? We often think that we're reacting to the the thoughts or the dreams in our minds or the memories that are passing through through the mental theater that we all have but all of those things that arise in the mind simultaneously arise with sensations on the body and we don't quite realize like when we feel anger we feel sadness like those are feelings in the body like we feel them anxiety is like a clear feeling and what we don't like is like is that feeling you know we have aversion to that so that love that level of sensations is always on we're constantly reacting to it and you can tell even when you're sleeping right you'll be sleeping on your bed and if it gets cold you like you'll grab the covers and put them on your body even though you're still asleep or you'll take them off because it's too hot and i think um you know so you wake up in the morning and you have actually been reacting all night so it's almost like a way for you to clean your mind from all the stuff that you've been accumulating at night and the same thing meditating in the evening you're like cleaning your mind from all the stuff you accumulated throughout the day when you were working and doing whatnot. It's like a physical manifestation of the glymphatic system, like just happening right when you wake up in the morning. (laughs) It's it's so interesting to hear again about this like concept because it is so, so beautiful how you make it a priority for yourself. You talked about how when you first started prioritizing your own health and well-being, you recognized that you were both your words, immature, and also that you weren't uh, taking the time to take care of yourself. Is there something that you can attribute that to? Was that a learned behavior or something that you saw growing up that you didn't want to interact with your emotions? Or was this just the result of your environment at that time? Oh, that's a great question. I think there's a number of things. I think, you know, I would cope by trying to escape right? By trying to just like not, not deal with whatever's there and ignore it. But I think the other part was, um, I think something that a lot of us people our age are reckoning with is like, most of us were we didn't grow up with parents that were meditators or, or therapists or anything like that. So we didn't have a way to engage with our emotions. Like most of us, you know, most of us like had the TV be our third parent or something like that, or our second parent. So we had we just had no real method to to process and i started realizing that when after i graduated college was like i don't even know like all i could all i knew was to run right was to run and ignore and if i wanted to feel better i had to face it but i think it was just um a mixture of like dealing with the sadness and anxiety that i grew up with and sort of was imprinted upon 
by dealing with just being a poor immigrant in the United States. Like I was born in Ecuador, came to the United States with my family when I was four years old. And we went through, you know, serious poverty when uh, we were growing up in Boston and seeing the struggle of my mom and dad trying to figure it out every month, every month, like how to pay the rent, how to get food in the fridge and just like, you know, seek after these fundamentals of life. Like I saw all of that. I saw that struggle. And to me, it's like, of course, like it makes total sense. Like this is where all this anxiety was born from. But then it just kept accumulating, kept accumulating over time. And when you have no tool to process, what else is it going to do? It's going to just keep snowballing and growing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, snowballing and growing. The first 10-day retreat put us in your shoes there. Yeah, I was, it was hard. Like, you know, like I said before, I, before that 10 day course, I was practicing, you know, without a meditation technique, just like challenging myself to sit with my emotions for five, 10 minutes. But now when I'm actually in the retreat, like, you know, we're doing a much, it's a, it's a real meditation, a much deeper sort of, uh, like firsthand experience of whatever's arising and passing away inside of your, you know, your being. And we do that, you know, 10, 11 hours a day. So to me, I was just like, one, it was, it felt so difficult. And I was totally doing the bare minimum, you know, like just not, not meditating the full 10, 11 hours, that first course. And I kept looking at the guy who, um, who I got a ride with. And I would see him and I would kind of just, I was kind of trying to get a sense of like, is he going to leave? Is he going to stay? Because if he's going to leave, I'm going to try to hitch a ride back with him because this was the time before Uber. And there was no, like, and I, we were in the middle of nowhere, Washington state, you know, this, this little town called, called on Alaska. And I remember when we drove there, there was nothing on the way there. And I've, I've, I've been to that center again before, um, like, you know, of, I think like five years ago, I went back to that center and did another, a longer 20 day course there. And I drove to that place from different directions and there's, there's just nothing <laughs> to get there. And if it had, if it had been a different time, if it had been like five years later, I think I probably would have just gotten an Uber and left. And I'm really fortunate that there was no real way. And I was also, I didn't have any money back then. So it wasn't like I was going to pay for a train or, you know, or, take a really expensive cab or something like that. So I think like, I'm really fortunate the way things worked out that I had to, I had no other choice, but to just be there and just face it. But once I realized that this guy who I got a ride with wasn't going anywhere, um, I was like, okay, I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm, so I took the last few days of the course really seriously, started meditating more. And when I got back to Portland, Oregon, where I was staying at the time, I was surprised. I remember walking back and like going back because I was staying um, in, at a farm and I was like back on the farm and I was like, whoa, like my mind, I've never felt my mind like this before. Like it feels like my mind has space, like it isn't pressed with like, you know, anxiety or something that it wants to grab onto. Like I'm able to like look at a tree and it almost, it almost felt like I could see more leaves in a tree than I could before. And it just felt so new and so balanced. And I was like, whoa, whatever happened, I actually don't really fully understand how the meditation worked, but let me go back and get a bigger dose of what I just got because I need more. Yeah. And it's so interesting hearing you describe this so 
beautifully and with so many examples because for someone who doesn't have a meditation practice or has never felt this way, it may be really hard to sympathize with it. And what I'm hearing you say is you came out of this experience and you truly felt less of a sense of urgency, which is something yeah. that we all struggle with, I can say confidently, right? And for better or for worse, that happened for you, just like the pandemic, honestly, happened for so many of us to also discover what it felt like when there was less of a sense of urgency. Yeah, I totally, I mean, it's interesting too, because I credit, so the book that I wrote, Clarity and Connection, a lot of that um, I was finishing the manuscript when the pandemic first started. And that moment where my wife and I were like in our tiny apartment. So so we lived in New York City for seven years. The first half, we lived in Crown Heights. And then the second half, we lived in the North Bronx. And we had this like tiny little apartment, one bedroom apartment. And it was the two of us there for the first, you know, like first three, four months. And in that space, we started realizing that there were a lot of things about our relationship that were sort of going under the rug that we weren't quite quite dealing with, that we had to talk about, that we had to not only like sort of forgive each other for past mistakes, but we also had to build better structures on how we communicate and how we get along. And um, and I'm, I'm really like, I mean, the pandemic was incredibly difficult. Like I lost family members. It was it was a tough, tough moment, but I'm also grateful that I think because of what happened, my wife and I were able to take our relationship to a new level and just learn how to be together better and how to love each other better because it just revealed everything that was wrong. Yeah, for so many, for so many. And thanks for sharing that. I, I think there are, I know there are many people listening to this right now that may feel as though they are in a similar situation and don't even know how to approach conversations that would yield a similar result. So for that person, how do you start getting to a place with your partner where you can have vulnerable, honest conversations that you don't feel like you need to run from? Yeah, I think there, there's a few key things. Like one is understanding that dishonesty always creates distance. And that's either dishonesty between you and yourself. That means you're literally creating space between you and yourself. And that means you, your sense of awareness and your like total truth. You know, you're not, you're not accepting it. And acceptance is that sort of medium that closes that distance. And when you really understand that that distance is something that you can create within you and yourself, you also start seeing that that's a distance that you can create between you and your partner. And when you're both being dishonest about things, you're just creating so much space between the two of you that you can actually come closer and be a more sort of genuine unit together. And I think it's it's difficult because sometimes when you do start telling each other the truth compassionately about, you know, whatever it was that you were sort of carrying inside of you, it's going to be hard. Like it's going to be hard to overcome that and be able to either do that work of forgiveness and letting go or figuring out a new system. Cause the, you know, whatever the truth may be that you need to put forward, you know, who, who knows how the other person's going to receive it. But as long as you're trying, it's like worth trying to tell the truth to each other in that manner um, because it's ultimately going to bring you closer together. And the other side of things that I really recommend to people is that, 
you want to check in often, you know, and I'm talking at least on a daily basis, sometimes two times a day about where your emotions are, because that's probably one of the most um, beautiful gifts that my wife and I have been able to give to each other is simply more information because we'll wake up in the, in the morning and sometimes we wake up and one of us will feel down or heavy or like, or, um, you know, a little tired from the previous day. And so quickly that feeling that you have, if it's untended and if it remains unaware, it can start developing a narrative. And the mind really does not like to accept responsibility for whatever it's feeling. So it will take whatever you're feeling and start making it the other person's fault. It'll like try to find a way to make it the other person's fault. So when you check in about your emotions and you're like, oh, this is how I'm feeling right now, you let yourself know how you're feeling. You let your partner know how you're feeling. You both have that extra information and then you can you know, act on it in a way where you can better support each other. And I think the miracle, not the miracle, but the, you know, the wonder of like, of being able to tell each other this extra information is that it really does stop unnecessary arguments from happening because the mind loves to play these games where it's like feeling a particular emotion. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, this isn't my fault. This has to be your fault. Like, and when you just own it and you realize, you know, this is just another passing, changing emotion, it's much easier to just let it go without it causing any trouble. Ah, the mid-roll, the mid-roll, a beautiful place for me to talk about the brands that I love, the sponsors that make this all possible. Know that every single brand sponsor that you hear me chat about here on the show, I'm using their stuff in my everyday routine, which brings me to the sponsor that I want to give some love to in this ad read. It's Element. Element is an electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. It's plant-based. It's got no sugar, no gluten, no fillers, no sketchy ingredients. It has been my go-to not only during my marathon training cycle, but I literally just shook up a bottle. It's sitting next to me here at my desk with my favorite flavor inside. It's watermelon. And I am drinking one of these a day at least. That's because when we get the right electrolytes in the proper ratios, it's a little nerdy, but then the cells of our brain and body, they can function optimally. And that is what I am after. They've got a ton of flavors. I mentioned watermelon's my favorite, but they've also got citrus, orange, raspberry, grapefruit, mango chili, which makes a mean margarita. You heard it here first. A different sip for every taste. And of course, we've got an awesome deal for you so that you can try them all out. Get a free Element sample pack with your purchase today by heading on over to drinklmnt.com slash hurdle. I can get a free sample pack so that you can try out all of the flavors with your purchase today. Just head on over to drinklmnt.com slash hurdle. Last little thing I want to throw into this mid-roll today. Please, if you haven't done so yet, head on over to wherever you are listening to this podcast, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, you name it, and leave a review. Leave a review and leave a rating and tell the people why you love Hurdle and what keeps you coming back for more. Not only does your feedback mean the world to me, but it also helps in all of the crazy podcast rankings and whatnot. So do that. Do some good for me today. I love you for showing up for me. You're the best. And with that, let's get back to this episode.
whether or not you have a partner, let's talk about self for a second. How do we get to a place where we can regularly choose to be more kind to ourselves? Oh, that's a good question. I think it has to do a lot with acceptance. Like to me, self-love is like, it's not consumerism, right? It's not like you buying yourself things that you haven't gotten yourself before. It's more so it's an energy that you use to try to know and heal yourself. But that aspect of knowing and healing yourself, it's not going to work unless you come into it with self-acceptance. And when you're able to get to know your own emotional history, get to know, you know, the the your, sort of your ebbs and flows and accept the way you move through the day and simultaneously accept the history that's affecting your day to day, you start developing a sense of compassion. And I think from that compassion comes this kindness that you start treating yourself because you know, you're like, I can't be 100% every day. I can't be like, I can't always say the right thing. I can't always like, you know, put my best, best creativity forward. Or, you know, when you start realizing that there, it's natural to have ups and downs, you can treat yourself with so much more kindness. And you'll notice that the downs, they're not going to be as like hard or as long as before, because you're just like, as opposed to throwing tension onto the down moment and worrying and adding more anxiety to it and being like, well, how long is this going to last? This is going to be forever. You're just like, oh, it's just, you know, another moment that's changing and it passes by more quickly. And you talked about the profound hurdle moment that you had back in college when you really started to turn your life around. So is that what you noticed as other difficult moments would continue to arise for you as you continued on in your journey that they felt more like something that you were able to handle? Yeah, I think I, I learned over time. I mean, in the beginning, it was incredibly difficult because I just had no practice of even spending time with my emotions. But as time moved moved forward and I was able to, you know, build that quality and that habit of sort of checking in with, you know, whatever I was feeling, it, it helped a lot. So now I feel like um, even when I think about my emotions, I don't think about myself like as, I am sad or like, you know, I am, you know, whatever emotion it could be, it's more like sadness is moving through me or like, you know, this or like uh, tension, tension is here for a moment. And it's more so like I'm losing the identification with it and I'm feeling it, you know, honoring whatever's there. But it's just like it's just another thing that's moving through. That is really powerful because that's exemplifying the difference between fact versus feeling, right? It's like, I can sit here and I can say to you, I have brown hair. And I can also say to you, I am sad, but I am not permanently sad. I will permanently have brown hair. I'm never going to have blonde hair. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> so there is a difference between those two things. And for some, especially when that feeling feels so grand, feels so large, feels so overwhelming. It's hard to distinguish between the two. Totally. Because I think that's uh, like the nature of the mind is like we love stories and we'll love them even if they're like bad for us. Because like it's really easy for us to get attached. Like we don't just get attached to the things that we crave. We also get attached to the things we hate and we spend so much time. So if it's like a story that you know, we're not good, we're not worthy, like, you know, I'm bad, then like, we'll, we'll sometimes cling to these stories, and we'll keep augmenting them and adding to them. But really, it's like, you made you know, if you made a mistake, you made a mistake. Yeah, or if you did something great, you did something great. But like, every moment is just not going to be the same, they're going to keep 
changing because that's just the law of the universe. Everything is impermanent. You talked about how the pandemic changed your relationship with your wife for the better. Arguably, it also dramatically impacted your career. So many more people finding you and your writing during this time. Talk to me about what that was like for you. What was it like for you when more and more eyes started reading your work and your words and looking to you for a little bit of solace? Um. You know, it, I mean, it got to a point where, I mean, I remember when the pandemic like first, first started, right? Like we all were just so confused. Like we didn't know what was going to happen. We thought we were going to go, you know, there was going to be no work for like two, three weeks. And, and then it just kept dragging out, dragging out longer and longer. And it was interesting because I remember the first two months of the pandemic that like March and April of 2020 everything on the internet just slowed down and rightfully so i mean i remember in because i was we, I mean, we were were you in new york during that first wave yeah i'm actually living quite close to where you used to live right now yeah so so that first wave i mean that that was intense because that was like um i think the number is like somewhere around like twenty thousand people died in the city in like two months it was wild and it, it was also like um like micro located i don't even know what the right term is but it was like really in the city and in a few other cities and not in the rest of the country. Hyper-local. Hyper-local. Yeah. Right. So it was um, like a strange sort of moment where like we're really experiencing it and a lot of other parts of the country and the world are not quite experiencing it yet. And so people are like kind of online, kind of not. Nobody's really liking things as much as before because we're all kind of just like confused about what's happening. And I, I remember personally just being concerned because I, you know, I had friends who were in the hospital, like friends who were like so sick in bed, they couldn't move for a week. And, or there were people who knew that, um, you know, it, was, it almost felt like everybody knew somebody who had, who was like either in the hospital or had passed away. And so in that moment, it was like, let's just move slowly. You know, I'm not even going to be worried about this, like Instagram thing or whatever's going on. It's like, it's just what's most immediate. And let me, you know, tend to my relationship with me and my wife and then see what happens. But as things sort of settled down and then it became, you know, May, May, June, July, that's when things really took off was like, because we knew we were like in this quiet zone. I think a lot of people started thinking about their relationships, thinking about like how, you know, looking for different tips that they wanted in terms of self-improvement, because like not everybody was in a relationship. Some people were just like in their apartment alone with a small circle of friends and, you had no other choice but to face yourself, you know? So I think that was one of the reasons why people were just like looking for different things to try to put into practice or different uh, things to reflect on. And it's been an interesting ride ever since. Like things really, you know, grew a lot during that time. And I think the numbers have gotten to the point where they're almost unimaginable, right? Like, I don't know what like 2.7 million people look like. Right. There's just no way my mind can even try to wrap, like honestly try to wrap its mind around it. Like there's limitations to that. And so to me, I feel like I I don't I can't quite measure the impact that I'm having. Like I really don't know. I can hear from stories and whatnot, uh, from different people, or if like my friends know somebody that likes my work and then they tell me a story. 
And it wasn't until I went back to one of my first conferences after the pandemic, you know, I was doing a talk and I, I ended up speaking to one woman who wanted me to sign her books. And she told me that like, you know, she had all three of my books and she was like, you know, she was like, you saved my life. And she was telling me her story. And I like, I almost felt like in a really positive way, like a deer in the headlights. Like, I'm just like, I'm taking in her story and I think during that whole time when we were alone, like I really, you know, I see the numbers, but I don't know what the numbers mean. And there are comments, but, you know, you check the comments sometimes, but not all the time, because that's also very, you know, exhausting. So I'm trying to watch out for my own mental health when I'm, you know, sharing things online, but getting to meet an individual and hear her story and what she went through and how these books helped her, I was just like, I couldn't even believe it. You know, it, it just kind of shook me awake and was like, wow, this is like, it's really affecting people. So I'm trying my best to, you know, to, to just one, be grateful that I can even help and then try my best to serve people well. It's really beautiful. It's so special that we have each of us the opportunity, whether you have 2.7 million people trying to keep up with you or just your family and friends, right? Like each of us have that opportunity to make an impact on someone else. And especially in today's digital age, you truly never know who is watching and who you are impacting. I would be remiss if I didn't flip this question and ask you who impacts you. Oh, that's, um, I mean, my number one influence is definitely uh, my wife. Like, I think I'm learning from her every day, sometimes more than what I want to be learning. It's just, you know, so like we just get that uh, like positive feedback and also like it's clear like how far we've come and how much I need to work on or but I'm so grateful to the I don't know the, the wisdom that she like because she's a really serious meditator too the wisdom that she's putting out there and I am also really influenced by there's this teacher in this Vipassana tradition um, Barry Lapping who he's been meditating for like 50 years he's like 70 I think 75 or 76 now and I mean, this guy has been meditating so much, like started around the same time that I started. Like, I think he was in his early 20s. He's someone that I bring my questions to. And I'm always like, just so impressed by how unstressed out he is. Like he, he like, you know, is helping a ton, helping a ton of people, you know, working a bunch, but just does it all so calmly and so peacefully. And he's so unafraid of change. And it's like, uh, I don't know, I, t I take a lot of inspiration from him, from him. In the best way that you know how to someone who may not have any true understanding of how someone sits down to meditate for the amount of time that you do, can you explain, albeit briefly, what that period of time actually entails for you? Yeah, sure. So one, I think the best explanation is probably like when you go to these silent 10-day courses, you spend the first three days being aware of the breath and it's called anapana. And um, you're just, you know, aware of the breath in a way where it calms and concentrates the mind. And that, that calming and concentrating of the mind sort of prepares you to be then able to really observe the body. Um, Cause we're all aware of our body, but to certain degrees when we're able to really calm and concentrate the mind, you're able to feel your sensations in a much more like vibrant and crisp level. And the last seven days of the retreat, you're, um, you know, being aware of the sensations on the body and within the framework of the body, when you're being aware of it like that, 
you start learning more about the truth of impermanence. And um, so that's what you do during the silent 10-day courses. And when I meditate at home, it's just that same sort of direct observation of impermanence. You're just, you know, feeling the sensations on the body and understanding how everything is always changing. And that's, you know, the sky level view of the technique. And of course, when you get there, there's like, it takes those actual 10 days to learn how to be able to practice well. And because um, you not only have to learn the technique, but you have to develop the qualities of the mind during that 10 day so that you can actually feel, you know, what's happening in the body because it's, um, there's so much more, I mean, to the point where you can, you know, feel how everything is changing literally like at a microscopic level, um, which is totally possible if the mind is enhanced. If the mind is enhanced, I firmly believe there's no such thing as a dumb question. So I've got to inquire whether or not there's a timer for something like this. How do you know when the process is done? <laughs> totally. The, the, the iPhone will let you know. Yeah. I set, <laughs> <laughs> I set the timer, you know, for an hour and then when it dings, yeah, it's done. <laughs> On to the next thing. Do you ever get to that ding and you crave or require more time? Yeah, sometimes for sure. And it, and it all depends, you know, sometimes I'm on the go and it's like, you'll, you'll get more time when you get more time. But um, other times, if you need more time, then yeah, I'll be fortunate enough to keep sitting. What would you say right now, knowing that this practice prepares you for even greater challenges ahead are your current biggest challenges? My current biggest challenges are, I think, time management and well, is it really time or is it energy? It's more like energy management. It's like mm -hmm. trying to figure out where I want my energy to go to because I'm really enjoying being an author and writing books. But um, I'm also like the past two years, myself and five other friends, we built this venture capital company that is really focused on trying to invest in companies that are sort of building that next generation of internet platforms that are intentionally built in a compassionate manner, that are trying their best to create whatever products they're creating, but with the well-being of the user in mind. Um, so to me, that's been like a whole world that I've been opened up to and um, have really been enjoying because I feel like, I mean, you know, we've been using the internet for so long, but it can be better. And we need to, you know, keep developing platforms in a direction that just are not increasing loneliness, are not making people more depressed that are still giving people the services or fun that they're looking for, but not in a way that's like inducing anxiety or hurting people's minds. So I'm pretty excited to be, um, you know, jumping into this work, but at the same time, like balancing that with writing and everything has been um, like a, you know, a learning curve. A proper multi-hyphenate. What a 2023 answer. I'm passionate about meditation. I really love to help people find their personal betterment. And I'm also interested in venture capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other day I was, uh, I was um, talking to someone and they were like, why are you a poet with a venture capital company? I was like, I don't know. Cause I'm trying to help. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Gotta do something with this money. Shoot.
Yeah. Oh man, that's great. That's truly great. You know, something I ask everyone that comes on the show and especially relevant to our conversation, because we did talk about your sizable following people come to your Instagram feed and they see a person that is not only a New York times bestselling author, but also someone who really does understand so much of the work that we're all trying to do every day toward, you know, better self-belief, uh, personal betterment and developing clear, healthy boundaries and relationships. When you look in the mirror, Diego, what is it that you see looking back at you? Oh, I see um, someone who's really doing their utmost to embrace the truth of impermanence. I feel like, like I know that I, I struggle when I don't embrace impermanence. If I develop a combative relationship with impermanence, then life hurts, right? That means I'm too attached to how things are. So I do my utmost to try to embrace impermanence, understand that everything's always changing, understand that there's always ups and downs. And I feel like when I do embrace impermanence, I can more easily flow with things as opposed to getting tossed around. I want to talk a little bit about this concept of lingering in discomfort or choosing a life or a way that we know might not be serving us, but we feel crippled to get out of. That is a concept that I know there are people listening to this right now and they're nodding their head and they're thinking about perhaps an exercise routine that doesn't serve them or a lack thereof, a relationship that they're in, a job, et cetera. So when someone feels as though they are stuck within this hurdle moment, incapable of getting out. Do you have any advice or suggestions of the first place to begin? I think the first place to begin is your intuition. It's like, I think oftentimes we will linger in that zone, right? When we are not sure what our next move is going to be. I think for a lot of people, um, life is so tricky and difficult that like, especially if you're trying to move from one job to another, like you still have to pay your rent. So you're not just going to bounce from that job and get, and, you know, and not have work for a while because you might not be able to afford that. So I think a lot of times we have to check in with our intuition because our intuition, I think it's often geared towards major events in life where it's like trying to push you outside of your comfort zone. So you keep sort of expanding in the ways that you need to. And like, I look back to um, when my intuition was telling me to write, I, didn't listen to it for like a year. And I was just, you know, doing a job that I sort of half liked and I kept doing it. But um, I I knew that this wasn't like what I wanted to continue doing. But I, it took me time to be able to not only clearly feel what my intuition was telling me to do, but also to just gather the courage to get it done. So I feel like that's my, my number one advice is like, your intuition will never ask you to harm yourself or harm other person or other people, but it will ask you to step outside your comfort zone. And your intuition is not your craving, right? It's not like, oh, I want more ice cream or I want more of this and that. It's going to try to give you a bigger message as to like, what's the next move? Yeah. So then the other part is like, are you bold enough to listen? Yeah. The, are you bold enough to listen is really the difficult part, right? I mean, I liken this or think about this for myself, getting out of an emotionally abusive relationship and staying in the relationship, albeit awful and hard and difficult. It was familiar territory and finding yep. the strength to get out of that relationship. It took courage and it took that bravery that we're talking about, right? And it's not until you get on the other side of it and you have that 
hindsight that you're able to say, just like we were talking about, about the strength that we gain from going through these difficult moments and that the next time it's easier to handle. And the next time after that, it's even easier, right? Not to downplay the severity or the difficult, like the difficult nature that goes hand in hand with dealing with some of these obstacles in our lives. Yeah, it's, it's challenging for sure. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that too. Cause I feel like it's so, um, like getting out of a relationship like that, you know, I can't even imagine how it was for you, but I feel like it's so important to share even the little tidbits of our stories. Cause like, like you were saying earlier, like you, we, we have no idea who we're going to help. And that's why I tell people, I'm like, this is the best time ever to get your message out there in whatever way possible. If you want to write, if you want to start a podcast, if you want to do whatever, just do it because you don't even know who you're going to help. Like you don't know. Yeah. And I also think that right now what we're seeing, especially, I mean, I was laughing last week looking at, I believe, I forget the exact number. It might've been like 30 creators or whatever the spotlight was that Forbes was doing. And it's like, a year or two years ago, these people had completely different jobs. And now they're on a top list of Forbes creators, each of them making over $4 million. And it's like, that's because one day they decided to share their story, their personality, their view with the world. And some people liked it and some people didn't, but it didn't matter because they were doing something with it. Yeah. And I, I was thinking just the other day when I was in the, in the car driving back from Boston, because my wife and I live in the middle of Western Massachusetts. And I was realizing, I was like, if, if everybody wanted to please everyone and wanted everyone to have a good idea of like who they were, you know, like have a positive image of who that, who they are in their mind, like nobody would ever be able to take a step forward. Right. Because like someone, there's always going to be someone out there who disagrees and that's fine. Right. It's good. I feel like it's, it's an important, uh, character development, um, quality that we all need to build where we can look at something and be like, oh, that's not for me without hating it. And it's like, oh, right, that's, you know, and then they just move on and move on to the things that they do like, but that shouldn't stop us from creating things because like, you know, you'll find your niche, you'll find your base. And then some people may not dig it, but a lot of people will. A lot of people will. You'll find your thing. You'll find your base. What would you say is your favorite thing about the base that you've built thus far? I mean, my favorite thing is that they inspire the heck out of me. Like, <laughs> you know, like when I when I see like whenever I do do events, which is really rare, like I'll do maybe like five events a year. Um, I go out there and I'm like, whoa, there are people who are like actively trying to heal themselves. And I love hearing the stories that people will tell me about the different techniques that they use, too, because like it's important to realize like just because one thing works for me, it doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody else. People need their own different modalities that meets their minds where they're, where they are, but just hearing different people's stories and seeing, you know, the, the case studies of like, I was once like this and I'm not perfect, but now I'm like this. I'm like, that's amazing. That that's a huge step forward. Like not only did you change your life, but you're actually changing the lives of the people around you because you're a kinder, gentler human being. And you're no longer like a point of harm, right? Because there are some times where there's like a giant web of humanity. And when we don't know how to process our own pain, we're just repeating our pain and then handing it to other people who are near us. And when people are healing themselves, transforming themselves, they're no longer a point of pain. It's not like their life is going to be perfect. But if something does happen to them that is difficult, they know how to process it within themselves without handing it over to somebody else. 
And I think that's, to me, that's beautiful. Like that's how we build a better world. I've got to know, you mentioned uh, the individual that you speak to about your personal practice, but beyond that, do you have anyone else that you speak to about what's going on in your own life? Do you personally seek out therapy or business coaching or life coaching? Who's in your guru toolbox? Oh, that's a good question. No, no, there. I've never taken therapy because uh, meditating has been like such a, you know, it's like really kept my hands full and I, my hands full and I've been learning so much from it. Um, I think there are people like business people that I go to who just know a lot more than I do. Mm-hmm. So I'm really grateful to my friend uh, who's also a general partner at Wisdom Ventures, a company that I was just mentioning, Bradley Horowitz, who he was a VP at Google for a long time. And he led the team that developed Gmail and helped build a lot of the products that we use every day. So whenever I'm like trying to do something or don't understand something, I'm usually like, hey, Bradley, like what's happening? I cannot imagine having the creator of Gmail like on my speed dial. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> this person in my toolbox. I know. And it's it's interesting because they, they understand things on a whole nother level. And like, we know, it's one thing to be able to use these products, but to think about how much goes into the design of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever I'm trying to understand the economy or trying to understand, you know, like how, how could we help this particular business? Like they're so wise in it when it comes to those things and the business world to me, it's like, you know, you can meditate a ton and it can hone your intuition and make you peaceful, but like, you still got to learn when it comes to business, you still have to learn from someone who knows a lot. Very true. Speaking of learning from someone that knows a lot, what is it that you hope that your audience is walking away with when they're learning from you? I'm hoping that people, one, the main main message is always the same one as when I first started was that healing is possible. I think that's like message number one. Number two is that there are tools out there for you. And sometimes that means doing a little bit of the like, spiritual buffet where you have to like try different things and try different modalities until you kind of hit the one that you're like, oh, I like this one. This one's really going to work for me. And that could be like what we've been talking about, like a wide range of things. But when you find the thing that works for you, you just got to dig deep and just, you know, keep hitting at it. And usually the thing that works for you is something that is challenging, right? But not overwhelming. And um, when you find that sweet spot, then you just keep moving forward. And I think, um, that was like one of the sort of main messages in the way forward in my new book, because like the world is going to keep changing, but if you're able to be connected with your intuition, if you're able to understand your own values and keep them simple, it'll help you as everything keeps transforming inside and inside of you and around you. Keep them simple right now. Diego, you have an opportunity to offer yourself a piece of advice looking back on that difficult hurdle moment in college, knowing what you know now, what do you tell yourself? I I tell myself that, um, that I definitely have the strength to rebuild my life and put myself into a better trajectory. Um, I think I was like doubtful in the beginning. Like I didn't know if I was able to if I was going to be able to recuperate, to be able to, you know, just change things around. And if I could tell myself that you do have the strength to to get this done, the determination, and that let it be a gradual process. It's not like everything's better in a year or two years. It's literally been a long game, like a long, like 11 years. And I think, you know, let, let the process be what it is. But I think it was, it's definitely possible. 
Let it be what it is. And that doubt also so understandable and relatable, right? At the the cusp of any big change, uh, it's almost inevitable. Oh, yeah. And I think it's totally natural. But I feel like how do you combat the doubt? You combat the doubt by looking at what are the actual results. And if you're trying to measure yourself from today to yesterday, of course, the picture is not going to be that pretty. But if you measure yourself from when you began to where you are now, which could be weeks or months, then you get a better picture of how far you have come. Because it's a very different thing between looking at yourself from a micro perspective to a macro perspective. For sure. Well, Diego, I'm so, 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 so happy that we were able to sit down and have this conversation. For those of you that don't yet follow you, and I feel like there aren't many listening to this show, but give us your info. Tell us how to keep up. Thank you. Um, So the best place to hang out, I'm really enjoying Substack. Substack is my jam right now. Um, so youngpueblo.substack.com. If you want to read my like new longer writings or to just like stay connected. I also have a private members only chat room there, which is really cool. Um, the other place is obviously Instagram, Young Pueblo with an underscore in the middle. And, um, and you can also find my books in bookstores everywhere. Bookstores everywhere. The newest one out now. I'm going to link it in the show notes. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.